Uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sabine Creek, and we are glad that you're with us. Uh, if you're joining us today for the first time, you find us in the middle of a series called Cultivate, in which we've been looking at uh, how it is that we grow as Christians. In other words, how is it that the fruit of the Spirit gets produced in our lives? We've been working through Galatians 5.22, word by word, basically, over the last several months together. And this morning, we come to the particular fruit that Paul uh, outlines for us in Galatians 5.22 is the fruit of goodness. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And we come to goodness this morning in that train of virtues that Paul uh, outlines as the work of the Spirit in our lives. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn there to Galatians 5.22. But we're going to bounce around a little bit this morning as we consider this fruit of goodness and how it gets formed in us. Um, what, one of the basic premises we've been working off in this series is this, is that there's a difference, a monumental difference between a morally restrained life and a supernaturally changed life. You've heard me say that every single week, and you'll hear me say that uh, until we're done with this series. There's a, there's a monumental difference between those two things, being morally restrained from the outside in and supernaturally changed from the inside out. Listen, if you were to come across a particular a stream out in the wilderness um, that was polluted, uh, you were, and you were to try and clean that stream up, the way that you would go about cleaning that stream up is to find the source of the pollution, where it was coming from, where it originated at. So if it was at a spring or a pool or a pond, you'd have to trace that stream all the way back up to the pond or the pool or the spring, and you'd have to purify the spring. You'd have to purify the pool. You'd have to purify the pond in order to purify what ran out from it, the stream that came forth from it. And the reality is the same thing's true in our lives, is that you cannot go about producing lasting, long-term, monumental change in your life if you're just trying to deal with what's downstream from the source. And what the Apostle Paul does in Galatians 5.22 is he says, there's a source here of all these virtues that get born in our lives and that get produced in our lives. And you cannot just generate these things by your own willpower, but rather there's a new internal power that moves in that begins to produce change in you as it begins to change the source, as it begins to change the spring, the pool, or the pond, so that what's flowing out from it now is changed as well. And one of those marks that Paul says of a life that's being changed inside, that at the, at the level of the spring, he says, is the mark of goodness. Goodness flows forth from a life that's being supernaturally changed. So the first question this morning is this, what is goodness? When you think about what goodness is, how can we get our minds, wrap our minds around this particular fruit of goodness? And we, we say this, that the fruit of goodness is, what it is, is moral virtue that flows downstream from a new heart. The fruit of goodness is moral virtue in our lives that flows downstream from a new heart. And when you think about goodness, you look throughout the scriptures and you find that goodness is an uprightness of heart that overflows into our lives, particularly with good works. Okay, with good works. So it's this uprightness of heart. There's something going on in here that then begins to flesh itself out into our lives as we engage in good works. Now, what kind of good works might we engage in as this fruit of goodness grows in our lives and we begin to bear it more clearly? You might engage in the good work of humbly celebrating the success of another person. See, by nature, a morally restrained life has a really hard time celebrating someone else's success. Why? Because we grow envious. Because we believe that we should be in their place. We should have their opportunity. We should be rewarded with their, um, their benefits. See, one of the good works is celebrating humbly the success of another person. Or it might be the good work of caring for those who are in need, like we talked about in detail last week, as we bear the fruit of kindness. 
Or it could be the good work of forgiving those who have sinned against us. And there may be people in this room who you feel have sinned against you, and as as opposed to allowing bitterness to begin to fester, that you extend forgiveness to them. It's a good work of extending forgiveness. It may be the good work of presenting the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness, as the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. That we don't take the members of our body and present them as members of unrighteousness and all kinds of sin, but rather we take them and we offer them up to God as a sacrifice and presenting them to God as members of righteousness, our eyes and what we're seeing, our ears and what we're hearing, our hands and what they are doing, all the parts of our body that we would offer them up to God as an instrument of righteousness. It's a good work. It might be the good work of serving in a particular ministry in the church and helping to bear the burden of the, and the weight of ministry so it doesn't fall on one or two or three people, that we all get up underneath it and bear it together. These are all good works. And goodness is, goodness is moral virtue in our lives, presenting our members as instruments of righteousness, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, serving one another as the Bible calls and commands us Two, celebrating others whenever they succeed and whenever God blesses them as opposed to festering with envy. These are all good works, all types of good works that are, evidenced, are evidence of the fruit of goodness in our lives. Now, some of us might be going, okay, hold on, pause here for a moment because I'm really having a hard time getting my mind around this. Aren't we saved by grace through faith and in Christ and not by what we do? And yet it sounds like that what we do really determines whether or not there's things that are going on internally. What's the relationship then between grace and faith and how that gets fleshed out in our lives and how, what works we do, the goodness that then comes out? What's the relationship between those two things? Because I've always heard you're saved by grace, uh, by grace through faith and in Christ and not by what you do. And I would say, yes, absolutely. That is absolutely 100% true. That there is nothing that you and I can do to earn our way to God, to deserve his acceptance, to receive anything from him. That we don't, we're not making deposits so that God would indeed give us a return one day. We're not taxpayers who are paying in and paying in and paying in and paying in with the hope that one day then God's going to give us this return. That's not what's going on here. But what is the relationship between these two things? In Titus chapter 3, I think there's a really keen insight into the relationship between faith are the gospel, God's grace, and our works. I want you to listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. He says this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So God doesn't save us because we've done anything to deserve it. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. What saying? What he's just said. He saved us by his mercy, not because of our righteous works, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own mercy moving out towards us, that he washed us, renewed us, poured out the Holy Spirit in our lives through Jesus Christ. We're justified by his grace, heirs of the hope of eternal life. This saying That saying, he says, is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things that I've just said. Not insisting on other things, on these things. Grace, mercy, God moving towards us, justifying us by his grace. 
But then notice what the purpose he says of insisting on these trustworthy things that he's just referenced in verse 8. He says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul says, listen, it's not that God has saved you by any works of your righteousness, any good thing that you have done. He saved you and justified you freely as a gift of his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ as the Spirit came in and caused you to be born again. That he washed you and cleansed you. He saved you and justified you, declared you righteous in the eyes of God, not because you climbed the stairs to ascend up to God, but because he came down the stairs to come to you. But Paul says, insist on all these doctrines, insist on all these truths, and here's why. He says, so that, so that those who have believed these things may be careful to devote themselves to doing good works. So what's the relationship between faith, grace, justification, and our works? The relationship is this. The relationship is the same relationship between root and fruit, between spring and stream. Between root and fruit. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, he says, if you make the tree good, then the fruit will be good also. But if the tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. Here's the relationship the relationship. It starts at the root and then gets expressed out in the fruit, in the branches. Or here's the relationship. It starts at the spring and then it gets flushed downstream into the realities and everyday circumstances of our lives. It's not that we're trying to swim upstream and change things about us and become people who are more willing to sacrifice and serve. Not that we're trying to become people who are more forgiving and less bitter, people who celebrate the success of others as opposed to growing envious. It's not that we're trying to swim upstream. It's that the spring has been changed by God's grace, by God's mercy as we've been justified. We get new hearts that then begin to express themselves in new lives. The good works didn't save us. But if you notice what Paul says elsewhere, even in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. That there will be goodness flowing forth in our lives because something's changed in here, in the heart, the spring, the root gets changed. And so we begin to bear good fruit and the stream becomes purified as the heart progressively gets more pure as the Spirit does what only the Spirit can do. There's the relationship. There's the relationship. See, so many of us have, have, have perhaps grown up in homes where they've kind of gotten the cart before the horse. And we think that in order to, have, to, to, to exhibit change, that we've got to, we've got to work really hard by our own willpower to produce change in our lives. What the Bible says continually is what happens is that God works and then we work. Not we work and then God works. God works and then we work. So there's this vertical God working in our hearts to produce change and then it gets pressed out into the realities of our lives. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that Paul articulates to Titus here in Titus chapter 3. George Whitfield once said it this way. He said, good works have their proper place. They justify our faith, though not our persons. 
Here's what he's saying. He's saying they don't justify you before God. Your good works don't justify you before God, but they justify your faith. In other words, they give forth, they show, shine forth evidence that you have true faith, that there's something really changing in here because there are things changing out here. Instead of bearing bad fruit, you begin to bear good fruit because things are changing in here. He goes on to say, it is evidence of our justification in the sight of men. Not our justification before God, but how do other people know who we belong to? How do other people know there are things going on in the heart? It's because they see it in the life. The fruit of goodness. As it gets borne out in our lives. So Paul says this is one of the key marks of a life that's being supernaturally changed. Now, there's a couple of people who need to hear this this morning, okay? At least two groups of people who need to hear what Paul says about the fruit of goodness and what he says to Titus about the relationship between works and grace. The first group of people who need to hear this are people who perhaps did grow up in homes or they grew up in churches where they got the cart before the horse continually and all they heard was moralistic teaching saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, as opposed to saying, this has been done. Now do this. There's folks in the room this morning who may need some clarity around what the gospel is. Because for some of us, we think the gospel is God is up there and I am down here and I have to climb the stairway to get to him. So I've got to work really hard to climb up all these steps to get to God. I can remember several years ago visiting um, the city of Boston and going to the Bunker Hill Monument. Anybody ever been to the Bunker Hill Monument? It's this massive monument that's erected on Bunker Hill to signify what the battle that took place there during the Civil War. And that, that's a massive monument, just flight after flight after flight after flight of stairs in this massive circle that goes up. And so the team that I was with, we ended up there serving a partner church at the previous church that I served. And the team that was with us decided we were going to climb the Bunker Hill Monument. I can remember I can remember climbing step after step after, and I, I thought I was in pretty decent shape, okay? I ran and lifted a little bit, and so I thought, oh, this isn't going to be that bad. So we climbed step after step, 300 and some odd steps up to the top of the Bunker Hill Monument. And I can remember getting to the top and just have to sitting down in this little confined space because I needed to rest so badly. And I thought, can I just, somebody carry me down? Anybody, anybody willing to sign up for that, that gig? Okay, somebody carry me down. Right? But as I climb the top of the Bunker Hill Monument, see, there's some of us who think God is up here at the top of the monument, and we are down here. we got to climb those stairs. Here's the problem, is that you and I as adults may be able to climb those stairs, but our capacity, our ability before God to climb those stairs is that of an infant. Like laying a six-month-old at the bottom of the stairs and saying, good luck getting to the top. Anybody think their six-month-old can climb to the top of the Bunker Hill Monument? You'd be kidding yourself. We're not able to do so. And but there are so many people who have grown up in churches where all they have heard is do this and do this and do this and do this and climb this stair and climb this stair and climb this stair and climb this stair. And eventually, one day, you might hope to get to the top where God is, and then he will receive you. But the Bible says something totally contradictory to that, something counter to that. That yes, there is this chasm between us and God, and that He is up here and we are down here. 
But what the gospel says, it's not our good works and our goodness that earn our way to come to meet him, but rather what he has done is he has come down the staircase in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that he has lived in our place. He's done the very good things that we should have done. And then he took the punishment for the, all the bad things that we have done. All the sin that we have committed. He's come down the stairs to us so that he might bring us to God. That's the good news of the gospel. So do not hear me saying this morning that to bear the fruit of goodness, you've got to climb the stairs to get to God and hope that he's going to accept you. But rather, the reason you're able to bear the fruit of goodness is because God's already come down the stairs in the person of Jesus to meet you where you are. Some of us need a little clarity around what the gospel is. And then a second group of people in this morning who need to hear this are maybe perhaps a group who have kind of grown complacent. They've grown complacent. And so we're not really bearing the fruit of goodness in our lives. We're not really bearing and being intentional about good works because we're not being propelled forward because the gospel has either gotten muddy for us or we're not thinking about it continually, consistently, waking up every morning and saying, I don't have to climb the stairs because God's come down them. And I'm looking at myself every day in the mirror, reminding myself of that reality and that truth. And as you look in the mirror and you remind yourself of that reality and that truth, it begin, you begin to fight against that complacency. Why serve? Because you've been served by God himself. Why forgive instead of growing bitter? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. See, those of us who are sitting on the sidelines while everyone else is carrying the weight of ministry, you, you, you've forgotten the gospel. I'm not here to just say, get off your tail and serve. I'm here to say, God has served you. You go serve. Bear the fruit of goodness in your life. I'm not here to say, go forgive. I'm here to say, you've been forgiven. Now turn and forgive your brother or your sister. I'm not here to say, present your instruments of your body as members of righteousness. I'm here to say, Jesus Christ presented himself as your righteousness in your place to God. So you go now and take your hands and your eyes and your ears and your feet and every organ of your body and offer it up to God as a living sacrifice. Do you need clarity? Or have you grown complacent? Paul says, these good works flow out of, they flow downstream from a life that's been changed internally and bears the fruit of goodness. Now, there's a counterfeit to this fruit of goodness. And here's what it is. There's a counterfeit to this fruit. And the counterfeit to this fruit, we might say the fruit of goodness is true virtue in our lives. And the counterfeit to this fruit is what Jonathan Edwards called common virtue. Called it common virtue. Now, Edwards says it's a great thing that there's common virtue because that makes the world a decent place to live in. He says, but common virtue is not true virtue. There's a difference between the two. Let me illustrate it for you this way. How is it that we often try and teach our children not to lie, to tell the truth, or to be honest, right? 
Typically what we do whenever we try and train our children to be honest, we try and train our children uh, to tell the truth, is we kind of prop up fear and pride in their heart, and then we kind of leverage those things against them. In other words, we try and train our children to be honest by saying, you don't want to lie because you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught in that lie, right? Your teachers are going to catch you at school. Don't want to lie. Your youth pastor is going to catch you. Your children's director is going to catch you. Worst of all, I'm going to catch you. And when I catch you, there are going to be consequences, right? So we prop up fear in our children's hearts to keep them from lying and try and encourage them to be honest. Or we prop up pride in our children's hearts to try and encourage them to tell the truth. You don't want to be like those people, do you? Who tell lies and they deceive. You don't want to be like them. So we're constantly propping up fear and pride in, the, in our children's lives. And, and so many of us were raised this way. And so what do we do? We, in default, we raise our kids this way by appealing to fear. Don't, you don't want to get caught. Or pride, you don't want to be like those people. But here's what happens. Over the years, as you continue to prop up fear and pride and kind of jerry-rig the heart a little bit, over the course of time, the very, the very kindling that you're trying to use to light a flame of honesty in the lives of your children ultimately winds up burning them to the ground because there's going to come a day where telling the truth and the consequences of telling the truth are going to, for them, seem to be more costly. They're more afraid of the truth than they will be of half-truth or deception. And so what's going to happen in that moment is when they're more afraid of the consequences of the truth than they are of getting caught in a lie, they're going to lie. Why? Because they've been, their moral life has been propped up on fear. Or there's going to come a point where telling the truth is going to cause them to lose face. It's going to cause them their reputation to be tarnished. And so they're not going to tell the truth. They're going to conceal it, and they're going to hide it. Why? Because of their pride. They don't want to be like those people. There's going to come a day as we prop up fear and pride in the lives of our kids to get them to be honest, where that's that kindling that we use to create that fire of honesty is going to burn them to the ground. And when they're going to stand back and go, I wasn't raised that way. Where did that come from? And you're going to say, you weren't raised that way. Where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from common virtue. It came from leveraging fear and pride in their lives. And listen, they're not the only ones who respond to fear and pride, are they? So do we. So do you and I as adults. Common virtue is the counterfeit to this true virtue. How do you know? How do you know the difference between common virtue and true virtue in your life? How do you know if the good works that you are doing are not being driven by fear and pride? How do you know if it's true virtue? How do you know if it's really the fruit of goodness? I want you to consider a text in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, down through verse 17 is what we're going to read together. It'll be on the screen for you. But consider what the Apostle Paul says. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How do you know if it's common virtue or true virtue that's being expressed in your life? I want you to consider what the Apostle Paul says here. First, first way that you know is what's motivating it. Is it being motivated by fear or is it being motivated by love? Are your good works being motivated by fear or are they being motivated by love? Look at what Paul says in verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. He says, for you and I, when, we, says, when you come to faith in Jesus, you didn't receive a spirit of fear that causes you to fall once again back into slavery. But rather, you receive the spirit of adoption as sons. There's a difference between the spirit of slavery and the spirit of sonship. There's a difference between fear and love, isn't there, as a motivating force in our lives. Paul says there are times in which we might all revert back to being motivated in our goodness, motivated in our good works by fear. He says, but when you do, you're putting yourself back under the yoke of slavery. There's a difference between being a slave and a son, isn't there? There's a difference between being captured by a foreign enemy and forced into slavery versus being welcomed and received into the home of a loving parent who's going to provide for your needs and care for you. See, slaves respond out of fear. Sons and daughters respond out of love. What's motivating your goodness? What's motivating your good works? Are you trying to propel yourself forward by fear because you're afraid of the consequences? Or you're, trying to, you're afraid that God's not going to receive you one day rather than seeing that he's already set his affection upon you and adopted you and brought you into his home. And he's feeding you meals. And he's providing you with clothes. And he's taking care of your needs as a good father would. And when you see that, all of a sudden love begins to kindle in your heart and grow. And so now your goodness is being motivated and moved by love and not fear. What's motivating you? Second of all, you've got to get down to the bottom, not only of the motivation, but also, also you have to look at the means. At the means, the motivation and the means. Listen, if you're being motivated by fear, then you're going to be trying to leverage your willpower to produce good works in your life. But if you're being motivated by love, the very spirit of God that abides in you is what's propelling you forward. Look what Paul says in verse 13 of Romans chapter 8. He says, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, by the Spirit, not by your own ability, not by your own power, not in your own might, in your own strength, but by the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body. Well, let me show you how this works. Listen, this means that it's not enough. If you're struggling with sexual addiction, it means that it's not enough for you to cancel your cable subscription. Okay? It's not enough for you to cancel your internet subscription. It's not enough for you to get rid of your, of your smartphone and go back to a little flip phone. Okay, it's not enough. Why? Why? 
Because if you're trying to do, if you're trying, basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to externally from the outside say, I'm going to rid my heart of this root of sexual addiction by putting all these external boundaries in place. But Paul says, you can't do it by yourself. But if by the Spirit, in dependence upon the Spirit and upon His power and upon this love for God that's beating in your chest, so that you look to him and long for him and desire him and fight against the flesh with love for God through the gospel. Then you begin to put to death sexual addiction in your life. See, it's not enough from the outside in to say, I'm going to cancel everything and, and, and conceal my eyes from all this. You know why? Because the root is still in here. <laughs> still in here. And you can put as many boundaries in place and build as high a walls as you want to build. But eventually, eventually what's in here is going to find a crack in that wall and it's going to chase it down. But if, but if, if the gospel melts your heart, if the gospel is, takes root in your life, if the spirit moves in, and you begin to depend upon him and lean on him every day. And you wake up and say, Father, I cannot do this on my own. But I'm depending upon your spirit today to set my eyes on things that are pure. I'm depending upon your spirit today to meditate in my mind on your word. I'm going to fill my mind with scripture, the things of the spirit. Paul says back up in Romans 8, 5. But the mind set on the spirit is life. Set the mind on the words that the spirit has fodder and kindling to work with in our lives to draw our minds back to it as you fight against sexual addiction. It's not enough to put external boundaries in place because you're going to find a way to jump that fence or dig under it. But if there's something driving you from in here, then you do cancel your cable. You do cancel your internet. You do maybe give up your smartphone. Why? Not because you're trying to go from the outside in, but because there's something from the inside that's fleshing itself out. You got to look at the motivation. You got to look at the means. Thirdly, you have to look at the result. How do you know if it's common virtue or true virtue? You got to look at the result. If it's common virtue and you've done it by your own strength, by your own power, with your own ability, you know what's going to happen? It's going to inflate you with arrogance and pride. But if by dependence upon the Spirit, motivated by love for God, you begin to put to death the deeds of the body and begin to exhibit the fruit of goodness and engage in good works in your life, then you don't go, yeah, look at me and how good I am. But you go, look at God and how good he is. What's the result? Is it bearing the fruit of pride in your life or of humility? Are you becoming a more humble person as you grow in goodness? Or are you becoming a more prideful person as you grow in goodness? Common virtue will always create more pride. True virtue will always create more humility. And finally, the fourth thing, fourth way to recognize the difference between common virtue and true virtue in your life is this. You've got to look at what it costs you and what you're willing to bear on account of it. Look down further in the text in Romans chapter 8. In verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, then he gives a condition, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Provided that we suffer with him. Why would we suffer with him? Because we're putting to death the deeds of the body. 
We're putting to death the deeds of the body. We're bearing the fruit of goodness. We're doing good works. And as we do good works, as we step out and forgive others, we might suffer on account of it. As we put our hands to serving in the church, we might suffer on account of it. Those of you who've been in ministry, you know. You know. Those of you who haven't, you just don't. Those of you who have served in any kind of capacity in ministry, you know that as soon as you set your hands to a work, there's opposition and there's difficulty. And you suffer and continue to serve and stay the course. Will you continue to forgive and stay the course? Will you celebrate the victories of others and not grow envious? See, that's, that, that, that's, the, heart, that's what, the heart of it. What will you suffer? What cost will you pay? What are you willing to pay to continue to labor? See, true virtue, true virtue is willing to count the cost and persevere, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of difficulty and persecution and ridicule. Common virtue, when the going gets tough, common virtue flies out the window. It has no persevering character to it. Common virtue is the counterfeit of true virtue, and true virtue is a work of the Spirit in our lives. So how does it get cultivated? A couple of things I want to share with you as we close. How does this thing get cultivated in us? I want to say this, goodness, this goodness is cultivated by going to war with the flesh, with the gospel as a son and by the spirit. With the gospel as a son, not a slave, and by the spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that there's, although the, 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 the flesh um, has been killed, has been crucified, he says it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 as well, crucified with Christ, no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Although the flesh has been crucified with Christ, as we've been buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life in Romans 6, the flesh still has remnants in our lives. It still has remnants in our lives. And in order to cultivate the fruit of goodness, see, you can't just try and swim upstream. You can't just cut off the branches. You've got to go after the root. You've got to go after the spring. You've got to purge and purify the spring. You've got to, you got to cut out the root of the flesh. You've got to go to war with it. You've got to fight against it every day. Because that's where, that's where this, the, 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 our, our virtue, that's where our character emanates from. So it's not just swimming upstream. You've got to fight against the flesh. And how do you do that? With the gospel. With the truth and beauty of who God is and what he's done in Christ. You've got to fight against it, not only with the gospel, but as a son who's been adopted. That God has traveled from a far-off land, and he's picked you up in his arms, and he's brought you home to love you. And you've got to fight against the flesh by the Spirit and complete, constant, ever-dependence upon the work of the Spirit in your life. See, it's not enough to say, here's three practical things to go and do. <laughs> because then you'd just be trying to swim upstream. You've got to go to the spring at the heart. Remember what Jesus said? You make the tree good, the fruit's good too. The tree's bad, and the fruit's bad. My hope for you, my hope for our church, is that we'd have people running all over the place whose springs are becoming pure. And so downstream, there's all kinds of works 
good works and goodness that's bearing itself out in their lives. That's my hope. Would you wake up tomorrow morning, and maybe before you lay your head on the pillow tonight, and would you petition the very Spirit of God and dependence upon Him to help you crucify the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the body so that you might begin to bear this fruit of goodness in your life as you fight against sin with all the energy and grace that God gives. Let's pray together. Father, we come today. We give you thanks for your grace and mercy and kindness to us. Father, we recognize that we do not deserve it, and that in and of itself is what propels us forward as your people. Father, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who perhaps is here, and maybe they have thought all their lives that Christianity was all about climbing to the top of the monument rather than recognizing that you've come down every stair. They thought it was about maintaining good works that would make deposits in their account that one day they'd be able to draw on rather than seeing that every good work has been accomplished for them by Christ. And by faith in the grace that you've bestowed, we're able to step out into the world and bear the fruit of goodness and do good works. Not for our salvation, but from it. Father, would you help us to no longer with ourselves or with those that we are raising to be men and women of God, would you help us no longer to appeal to fear and pride? To set them up for failure that we might not be set up for failure as well. But rather, would you help us out of love, very love that beats in our chest for you, to fight against the flesh, to put sin to death in our lives, that we might bear the fruit of good works. As the band leads us, as we reflect on the truths that we've considered from the scriptures together this morning, I encourage you, this needs to be a time, perhaps even of repentance. Maybe you recognize there have been areas in your life where maybe you have not been presenting the instruments of your body or the members of your body's instruments of righteousness, or you have lacked forgiveness towards someone who has sinned against you. Or you recognize that maybe there in your heart there is bitterness and envy that is festering. Maybe in this time you would just pray. You would confess whatever sin that's being driven by the flesh. And that you would take a moment this morning as we sing together lay that at the cross so that as you walk forth from this place you might walk forth and go out into the world bearing the fruit of goodness engaging in good works to the glory of God